Welcome to the Driving Change Podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network, where we live at the intersection of neuroscience and storytelling. If you love great stories and you love understanding the mindset it takes to be a world-class change agent, then join us as our fascinating guests from all walks of life unpack their unique journeys of perseverance and passion, of expertise and experience, and be inspired to use your own story to drive change. Welcome back, everybody, to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Have you ever had that boss or the manager or someone you reported to that you thought might have been an alien? Because they, they, they just didn't seem to get it. And, uh, you know, it, it still stats still come found me that every year the number one reason people leave organizations is actually not the the culture or the vision, it's usually the boss, the manager that they leave. Well, today's expert in this subject is going to actually teach us what one of the biggest gaps in leadership is, and it's how to actually be human as a, as a leader. And this isn't just someone who decided to do some, yeah, you know, make a few phone calls out of her garage and see what different managers around the country were thinking. She actually devoted the last decade, decade plus to her life getting an MBA and a PhD in this very subject. So Dr. Jennifer Nash is joining us today, and she's a leadership leadership expert, advisor. She helps leaders unlock their full potential and elevate their organizations by focusing on what I just said, that human element. She's served clients from Google to Ford to Exxon and on and on. Um, she's a founder and CEO of Jennifer Nash Coaching and Consulting. It's a global coaching, consulting, and advisory firm that connects people in performance, because that's critical, right, <clears throat> to deliver exceptional results. Now, here's the thing. She just, again, didn't just show up on the senior. She's served in executive and leadership roles at places like Deloitte and Ford. She's been an adjunct professor at the University of Michigan. I guess Ohio State wouldn't have her. Um, where she earned her MBA, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, she also has taught hundreds of rising leaders at Deloitte University. She earned her PhD in management from Case Western Reserve University, where our beloved Dr. Dan Doherty also got his PhD. Uh, and she's also conducted multi-year empirical research on coaching and leadership and the fellowship at Weatherhead School of Business. If you think about this, there's just so much richness of information here. She's also been a Harvard McLean Institute of Coaching fellow. I could go on and on and on, but you, at this point, you get it. She knows what she's talking about. She's credible. But we're also going to unpack her latest best-selling book, Be Human, Lead Human, and How to Connect People and Performers. Now, before you tune out, if you're not a leader, we're going to talk about how this applies to you at home as well as at work. Jennifer, welcome to the Driving Change Podcast. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. And uh, there's lots to talk about, so I'm excited to dive in. I promise you that'll be the second or third last joke I make about Michigan. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're in Buckeye country here. We've got to get this right. Oh, my goodness. Yes, I, I know. And I just, I should have worn my Michigan shirt today. I don't know why I didn't do that. <laughs> well, if our CRO was here in the office today in the studio, he's working from home today, but he's a big Michigan guy. So all we hear nonstop Michigan stuff around here, especially when Ohio State's having a down year. And we did get tired of beating Michigan after a couple decades. So we're, we've given you guys the field again, but we'll just move on. Okay, let's move on. Yeah, we'll see how that goes for you guys this year. Yeah, it's going to go well for us. I'm already quite certain of it. So, so as, uh, as I told you in the pre-show, our audience loves to get to know the guests well before we really 
know what you what you really came to talk to us about. So talk, take us a little bit back. I, I'm always curious to know where people come from, that origin story, and and where maybe little Jennifer started, and what was it about those the the origins of some of your own values and where you learned them from and maybe some of the people along the way that instilled some of them that led you to become this person who had this insatiable appetite to help people lead better. Where did that come from? Where did it start? Well, um, if I go way back, you know, I was, I grew up in a very small town in Michigan and my parents, um, you know, were the first to instill, you know, certain values in me of, you know, service and hard work. Um, and sacrifice. And so I grew up with sort of those, you know, Midwestern values. Um, and when I, you know, entered the workforce, I, I actually had a background in foreign languages and dance and music. Um, and I know you mentioned you were a musician as well. And so the working world to me was a very strange place. And I couldn't figure out why people did the things they did and why they behaved in the way that they behaved, why they said the things they did. Why was everything couched in sports terminology? It it was a very strange place for me. (laughs) And, you know, I'd always been someone who was very interested in gathering information and learning and asking questions. And so I started out my, you know, corporate career by observing and watching and listening and trying to figure out, you know, what was my little puzzle piece and how did that fit into this big border of the puzzle, which I never seemed to get the answer from anyone of what is the border of the puzzle. And um, that helped me realize that, you know, there were some some things that were maybe lacking um, in some of the people that were leading the organizations that I was working in. And it, 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 really prompted me to um, seek some answers to that. And so I kept observing that, you know, over the course of my 25 years in industry. And I got to a point where um, I tell this story in the book, and it's actually the story that I opened the book with, um, because this story was actually the catalyst for me to continue that formal education, you know, that you mentioned at, at Michigan and at Case Western. Um, and so if we have time, you know, I'd love to tell you that story um, to help you better understand, like, how did I get to this place of spending so many years of my life researching this and wanting to understand, you know, how can we help leaders be more human? Well, where were you in the evolution of, <clears throat> so you you got, you graduated and here's this person who's got this natural bent toward relationships, the, the human element, creativity, you've got all of those sparks of the stuff that, you know, I think you and I probably share someone in common and you get into the workplace and you're like, where is all this stuff? And I don't understand it because it's, it's a very process oriented and almost <clears throat> credibility driven leadership structure. And so where, where were you and what evolution of your career path? I mean, you probably were picking up tips and hints along the way. Um, what was that kind of an accumulation of, of you were like trying to conform to the system, yet it, you didn't feel right. And you started recognizing those puzzle pieces were missing. Like what, tell me a little bit about that journey. Cause you clearly made it up high in organizations, either doing it completely differently or complying to some degree, knowing that you were fighting the system of your own kind of DNA. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've never really been one for um, the rules, uh, especially the ones that don't make sense to me or what. So you were a jazz musician. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I learned that um, I had to play the game, which I didn't like, you know, I didn't want to do that. Um, but I also learned that if I wanted to get anywhere, um, I was going to have to play the game and I was going to have to figure out how to play the game well. And so, you know, I started to um, look at the people who appeared to be playing the game well and understand what they were doing. And, you know, that involved um, building alliances, you know, in certain places. It involved um, getting support from certain, you know, level individuals so that they would be, you know, um, protecting me and giving me air cover kind of idea. Um, and it, it really, you know, doing good work um, and doing great work was, you know, a, a, an important part of that journey. So, you know, I had to get up the learning curve very quickly on a lot of different things because they weren't necessarily things that I'd ever been trained in. I just had to figure out how to do them. And there really wasn't a lot of training available. There wasn't a lot of um, um, support you know, from that perspective. So it was just sort of my figuring out how do I create and design this path um, that's going to work for me um, and get me where I want to go, um, but yet also do it in a way that was consistent with my values and what I believed in. And I think the thing that I struggled with the most, Jeff, was I'm not finding any purpose in this work. I'm not finding a lot of meaning in what I'm doing. And Life is so short and I spend so much of my time at work. I really wanted that gap to be filled. And the more I looked around, the more I realized most people were feeling that way. And I really thought, you know, there's something wrong with the system when people are spending so much time doing something, but yet they're, they're lacking that meaning and purpose and they're not finding the love and what, and the joy in what they're doing. And I just decided that I, I really wanted to um, have that in my own life. And so after, you know, spending that amount of time in corporate, um, I decided that I wanted to go out on my own and do the work that I loved um, and do it in a way that worked for the clients. And so I started my own business in 2018. So it, it was it was sort of there wasn't a really um, I wouldn't say that there was like a roadmap for me, like throughout, you know, that 25 years. I didn't really have a intention of getting to where I wanted to go because I didn't always know where that was. I like to say that I did a lot of internships over those years. You know, I'd try something out and if it didn't work, then I'd go try something else or I'd jump to another group or I'd jump to another organization or, you know, I just, I wanted to continuously learn. And in doing that, you know, I kept seeing these different cultures. But what I noticed is that even though they were different cultures and the name on the door might've been different, the patterns of behavior and the patterns that I noticed in you know, what people were doing and how they were feeling and engagement and morale, I noticed that those were the similar. And so that gave me sort of a, a baseline to start, you know, the research that I started doing um, with when I started the PhD program. So let's talk about that then. I think that's fascinating to me is I'd love your perspective on what were, and we can start to contrast out, you know, we'll do, we'll do a before and an after, uh, you know, before, before therapy and after therapy of be human, lead human. So in the, in the before, as you started to think about those patterns of behaviors in those less than healthy cultures that you were either a part of or were observing as a researcher, uh, 
it could be all the way to the point of toxic, but what, what are some of those behaviors that get demonstrated? And some of you that are listening might be familiar with some of these as you hear her describe this. And then where do you think those, those come from? Yeah. Um, so there's so many. So let's, let's take the example of you're in a meeting and you share an idea with the group, right? And, um, no one acknowledges that you just said that. And then later towards the end of the meeting, someone else brings up the exact same idea. And everyone says, wow, that's a great idea. Like, you know, that's wonderful, Joe. Like, you know, we should move forward with that. And you're sitting here thinking, I said that 25 minutes ago. No one acknowledged it. And now Joe's getting all the credit for it. And not one person in there is standing up and saying, hey, but, you know, Jennifer said that like a half hour ago. So there's this there's this toxic behavior of, you know, taking someone's ideas and attributing them to yourself. Um, that happens a lot in organizations. Um, where does that come from? I often think it comes from um, a place of um, insecurity um, because they want the credit. They want to be recognized for having something contributed, something of value. Um, and I often think that sometimes it comes from a place of people just aren't at the same point in their journey as you are. So you may be someone who puts the dots together very quickly and you process and you critically think and you reflect and you come to some solution that maybe the other people in the room aren't ready for yet because they are still back at point A trying to determine and make sense of all the information that they're hearing. So sometimes it may not be a toxic behavior. It may just simply be that they just don't process as quickly as you do. But understanding those differences and understanding how it's happening um, makes a lot of difference in how you react to it and how you handle it, you know, as the person that maybe that is happening to. So what would be some blind spots that, um, we'll just do some some coaching for me, I'll get some free coaching out of this. Um, <clears throat> so it, I, I'm a fairly fast processor, type A driven um, type of lead. Like th that's my bent, right? I'm, I'm kind of inclined toward let's go make mistakes and make them fast and let's just move on. And like my wife always says, you know, you like to run through walls. If you just waited a second, you see there was a door there. I could have told you if you'd have waited a minute, there was a door over there. And so for leaders like myself, I've got a big heart and I care deeply for people, but I have this high performance kind of productivity mentality where I'm just driven to excel and, and, and succeed. What, what are some blind spot watch outs that you've seen for, for those types of profiles? Yeah. So Jeff, you know, one of the main things I see with, with, you know, clients that have this kind of behavior, right? They're type A, they're very driven. They want to get it done and they just want, they want to move fast. And one of the things that I often invite them to think about, and I'll invite you to think about as well, is what would happen if you just took a moment to bring everyone else along on that journey with you? Because if you did that, how much more amplified would your results be? Well, so you know, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to play devil's advocate back and say, well, yeah, but it would have taken us two years longer to get there. It might have been better, but it would have taken us two years longer. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I just, that's kind of how we think though, right? Sometimes is that we have that mindset of, yeah, I could bring them along, but I, it's just easier and faster if I just give them the answer and let's move on. 
Um, and, and, and this is partly confession, but partly we see this as well, right? We see this. In, so we're going to cover a couple different profile types. And this is just one of them. I'm just starting with myself. Yeah. So the, 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 the question then is, and we're going to get into the stuff that you have in your book with this is, how do you get someone like that to slow down when they are, they are bent towards pegging the RPMs all the time? And yet they have the position of leadership. And they have an entire team or an organization under them. How do you coach them to see that? Because you really have to rewire their belief, right? Because the belief is what drives the behavior. Exactly. Exactly. So that belief of, you know, I'm, I'm type A, I'm driven. I want to hit the RPMs. I want to get it done. I just want to give them the answer so that they can just move forward and not delay. Right. And what is the belief that's driving that for, for you? Let's take you. What is the belief that drives that for you? Yeah, I think sometimes for me is, is I've been doing certain things longer and I feel like I can see things clearly. And sometimes, uh, this is a bad, by the way, this, this stuff we're talking about, it's just as problematic, I think, in our, in our personal lives, in the way we parent and the way we coach kids, little league teams and all those things as well. Cause I've been doing a lot of self reflection on this over myself the last five years, right? <laughs> on all this, that it's like, okay, I, I, would they learn it if I just told them the answer? Because then we'll move on. Yeah, you would never do that if you were teaching a kid. Like you would always want them to, to read the content and then take the test and then talk to them afterwards about what they learned and what they discovered. Yet in the middle of the bullets flying, you're kind of like, ah, I'll just tell you the answer. And so then you'll know it and we'll move on. Next time I want to tell you the answer. And and that did, what happens though for like for me is you know we're a we're a we're a small bag, band of renegades in a fast growing entrepreneurial company, and if you stop to to let everyone kind of weigh in and go, well, we missed the last intersection. So we just got T-boned by the, the, the 18 wheeler that I knew was coming. I could have got us through the intersection, but we missed a lot of opportunities to learn along the way and bring people. I, we know the answer, right? We, we know the answer, but there's something, well, how do you help us rewire the belief? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think I'm still waiting to hear like, what is the belief that's driving that, that you'll save time? that it'll be easier for them, that you'll help them move forward, but they won't learn? Like, what is the belief that, that you're holding there? Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kind of serious right here. You say that, yeah, we're going to save time. It's going to help them because they'll learn faster because give them the answer and we'll get to results quicker. Mm-hmm. That Those are the beliefs, faulty or otherwise, that tend to happen, I think, in our mind. I hope my team doesn't go back and listen to this episode, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so those beliefs, you know, where do you think those are coming from? Where do you think those stem from for you as a human being? Well, I, well, I'll tell you as an expert, we claim to be experts in neuroscience and behavioral psychology. Everything's rooted in, in the problem of fear and self-preservation. It all, it all comes back from a self-preservation orientation and through the lens of fear is, well, if I don't act in this sense of urgency, no one will. Therefore, we won't get to where we need to be. Therefore, we will fail. Therefore, I'll have to do this. Therefore, we won't be able to make payroll next month. Therefore, so you just start listing off subconsciously all of the negative potential outcomes of not getting where you're trying to go. And you don't necessarily, then your belief of, well, everybody together would have gotten us there further we can get there like if you want to go somewhere fast go alone if you want to go somewhere further go together you don't you don't believe that in the moment because in the moment you just hear all the other negative things that could happen yeah yeah so it sounds like there's actually an opportunity 
when those things happen in the moment, you know, there's a, there's a moment between that, that stimulus and response where you have that choice of how you're going to react in the moment and the behavior that you're going to choose. And if you know that about yourself and you know that, oh my gosh, like this, this decision for me, how I'm going to behave right now is driven by fear. Is that how I really want to be leading in my life? Is that how I want to be reacting with my kids? What is it that's driving that fear for me? Where did that come from, you know, that is popping up for me in this way now? So this is really good. And we see this a lot in our clients as well. And, and I'll just keep you, I'll, I'll keep being the punching bag here. So it's part of the EI co- uh, content, right? It's that emotional intelligence of having that, that self-awareness in the moment um, and then being able to regulate that, that, that emotion appropriately. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so maybe there's an opportunity to, you know, help do that emotional self-regulation. Maybe it's a breathing activity. Maybe it's literally a five second breathing activity where you go, I would have behaved in this way before, you know, hit the, hit the accelerator instead of like, oh, let's let off on the gas for a second and just give someone a one sentence explanation of what might be different instead of, okay, what am I going to do this time? And how might that shift the dynamic of the person that you're leading, the person that you're leading or the conversation that you're having or the relationship that you have? How might that shift the outcome? Yeah. Now now my team, if they are listening, they're going to have these visions that they see me starting to breathe heavy through my nose. They're probably going to have this, like the bulls about to charge. (laughs) So no, I'm just, no, I'm working. I'm working on my breathing exercises. Yes. Just tell them that you have a breathing activity you're supposed to do right now. Just don't, don't have bitter beer face while you're breathing and think that people, you're about to start charging. Right. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, I I like your opinion on something else on this topic because this kind of gets into what you really found in your book. One of the other tactics that that I personally been trying and we try to coach a lot of other leaders on is in that moment when you have that recognition is when you do that pause and you're able to gather yourself and process that emotion is rather than make a comment, ask a question. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I talk about in the book, right? There's a stance between advocacy and inquiry. And, you know, it sounds like what you're using as you, you know, go forward with, you know, the pedal to the metal is, you know, the advocacy approach, right? Here's what you should do. Let's go do it. It's going to move us forward really fast. As opposed to the inquiry approach where you're seeking to understand and using a little bit more of a beginner's mindset, um, that can help the people around you feel like they have agency and feel that they are more empowered and that you actually trust them, you're respecting their opinion and their voice, and it may improve the quality of the outcome because maybe you do have the answer, but is it the best answer? Is it the right answer? Is it the, is it the answer that will deliver the desired optimal outcome for everyone? I don't know. I think it depends on the situation. So what happens when there are more voices in the conversation? That's really, yeah, that's really good. If you were to give advice then for when you think about all the managers that you've observed and the cultures you've been able to, to, to research, that idea, and I'll call it a myth because it is, that managers and or leaders 
Um, they're not the same thing. We know that, but they, that they're supposed to have the answer. Like the, they're the credibility factor, right? Where they don't, they have to be bulletproof and have the answer. Cause if they show any type of vulnerability that they might not know the answer to something, whether it's through inquiry or otherwise, they're going to look upon as, as weak. Like they, they're not qualified for the role. Have you seen that in your research that that comes out in those maybe negative cultures? So, yeah, you know, I think in some of those, especially the toxic cultures, um, you know, there's a, there's a definite propensity to think that if someone doesn't have an answer that they are, they appear weak. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the goals that I have for this book and for, you know, these kinds of conversations and podcasts is to invite people to think a little bit differently about the role of a leader, you know, the role of a leader is evolving and it's no longer a command and control type of type of position. COVID shifted so many different things in the world and there were so many negative consequences of COVID. But one of the positive consequences was that it, it is an invitation for us to rethink how we lead in this new world of work. And leaders don't have to have all the answers anymore. We saw that from COVID. No one could answer why this was happening or what was happening. For the longest time, no one really knew. And we were just trying to figure it out as we went. And eventually we got to a place where we understood what it was, how to treat it, how to better treat it, how to be more effective with our you know, outcomes so that more people survived rather than passed away. And I think when you look at the, you know, the battlefield of organizations, you know, there's a lot of dead bodies laying around from a lot of decisions that were made from leaders who felt like they had to be heroes all the time, um, you know, from people who couldn't handle, you know, the toxic culture um, and, and left. You know, we still have the Great Recession going on. Maybe not be as the same magnitude as it was in 2021, but we definitely still have a lot of attrition happening. And it's because the culture and organizations still has not shifted to the place where people feel valued for the for who they are as human beings, not just the totality of output that they provide to the organization. So I think this idea of a leader as a hero is one that needs to be cast aside. And when a leader can be human and a leader can be vulnerable and a leader, we're human beings, we all make mistakes. When we show that and we're courageous enough to show that, then the people around us can be human as well. And I think when we have that permission to be human, we bring, <clears throat> excuse me, we bring the best parts of ourselves to the, to the forefront. And that's what allows us to have these amazing results that organizations realize. So I'd love to ask your um, opinion on this. So I'll just show the, show the group here. Like the, the, here's the book. If you don't have it, go get it, buy it, download it, ship it, whatever your preference is on this Be Human, Lead Human book. When you hear, I'm curious, because I always try to sit in the seat of the person driving around listening to the show. And I'm, and I'm wondering if someone might be wondering, what, is, what does Dr. Jennifer mean by Be Human? What does that mean to you? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that it means. Um, the first is that when I walked into the workplace on my first day of work in a corporate setting, I had to wear a certain kind of outfit. I had to, you know, figure out how to speak in a certain way. I had to figure out how to act in a certain way. 
Um, and those things felt like I was putting on a costume or they felt like they were a little bit alien to me, like you mentioned at the beginning of the, of the show. And I, I feel like there are so many different um, indicators that we get when we walk into the workplace that almost demand us to put that human element of ourselves aside and put on that professional persona or put on that, you know, that suit, if you will, the suit of armor that like we have to act with and behave with. And that dynamic, you know, has perpetuated. And then COVID hit and all of a sudden, these carefully erected walls that we had came crumbling down when people were on Zoom calls and the blur feature hadn't been invented yet. And so, you know, you see the dogs running in the background and the kids running on camera and, you know, the cats walking across the keyboard. And you, know, you realize that, like, you know, here is our lives, you know, displayed in all of their messy, messy beautifulness. And we are all just human beings trying to do the best we can to get through the day. And yet when we walk into the workplace, we're expected to be perfect. We're expected to have all the answers. We're expected to, um, um, you know, not show vulnerability. We're expected to be strong all the time. We're expected to shut off emotion. And we're human beings. We're emotional creatures. We're social creatures. We need connection. We need interaction. We need relationships. And so there's this dichotomy there. And, you know, it just kept occurring to me that, leaders are expected to sort of be inhuman because they're expected to be superheroes. And so if we can invite leaders to be human at work and show their human side, then they will lead human, they will lead humanely, and they will lead other human beings. And so that is actually where the title of the book came from. Be human, lead human. So let's get into it then. I love it. Um, Give us, obviously, we don't have a, you know, three hours to go through this. It'd take us three weeks to even unpack you know, a chapter in your book that g- give us a little bit of that. Then now, we're, uh, cause I love what you share in that the Dr. Dan does and, and, and Dr. Boyatis and Tony Jack and everybody else we've talked to Ellen, um, all the ideas around the core essence of being human as a leader begins with values. Um, and that seems like the starting point of really identifying a lot of, from a self-reflection standpoint, how do you coach a, a leader manager today who we need to be the leader of the future to, to create this, the, the, to really, sh- you know, to, to take off the, the armor and say, this is how we're going to help you create that place of safety you feel because we're going to start with a, a core essence of values. Where, how do you walk someone through how to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the first things that I talk about in the book is that who you are as a leader has everything to do with who you are as a human being. So what is important to you outside of the workplace, you know, the values that you hold, the beliefs that you have, those are the things that are going to manifest and show up for you as a leader. It's not like you leave half of yourself at the office door when you walk in. And so oftentimes I find that there's this leaders and managers have this, this belief that they, they have to separate the personal and the professional. And, you know, I often invite them to think about like, well, how are you separating yourself into two people? Like it doesn't work that way. And so let's start with addressing that belief first. Because if you still believe that there's a distinction between who you are as a person and who you are as a professional when you walk in the door, then we're not going to get very far with your values exercise. 
So let's talk about that part first. And then once we resolve that, now let's talk about the second belief that we need to address, which is um, leaders lead other people. And if there's anything that I have learned in my 25 years of, of working and then, you know, five years of being an entrepreneur, it's that leaders have to lead themselves first before they can lead other people. And so that then opens up the conversation for how do you lead? What is your, I call it in the book, I call it your internal GPS. What do you use to make the decisions that you're making every day? How do you decide which direction to go or what's important or how, how you want to take that next step in your career journey? What are the values that are guiding you in that way? And so in the book, I walk the reader through, you know, how to assess what those values are and then walk them through a prioritization exercise. So at the end of that, they come out with a list of very clear values that they've articulated for themselves, that they understand what they mean, and they understand how those are guiding their decision-making and judgment in their position in their life, leadership, and career. And they're, you know, to your point, they're, they're, they should be wholly universal to that person, right? It isn't that you have, I like to joke around that when you ask someone, hey, you know what, if you only had you know one sentence to put on your tombstone and encapsulated everything you thought your purpose was in life, what would it be? And they'll, you know, they'll come up with some really profound, you know, I was a, I was a great dad who, who loved to serve others and give back to people or whatever. You know, they come up with some really amazing, uh, per- I was like, well, why do you, you don't get two headstones, at the end, you don't get a professional one and a personal one. So why did you instantly go to your personal one? Because that's really what matters is the core essence of who you are as a human. And to your point, and the life that you lead uh, has to be reflective of your true core calling and purpose, which starts with those values. It just happens that they also translate to the workforce, whether you want them to or not. You just learned how to professionalize them and turn them into some corporate speak to where they don't even sound human anymore, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, remember that like Dilbert? Um, oh my gosh, there was like a mission statement generator that used to be online that for Dilbert, you know, I don't know if you ever tried that. That was awesome. Yeah, that, that's right. It is though, right? Because we, yeah, it, it'll turn your emotionally connecting, empathetic, true self into Jeff believes in in, in integrity and honesty and work champion, blah, 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 champion cause for the acceleration of the vision of the company mission. Uh, And and over here, it started with Jeff cares deeply about puppies and and people and and adoption. And and like, how how did this turn into this? This doesn't make any sense. Yet that's what we tend to do, right? And I think that's kind of what you're talking about in your book is in leading yourself first is, is number one, looking in the mirror and, and, having a really good, honest conversation about who you really, truly are. And that's my next question. I mean, I could go for days on this, but I find that for many times leaders, because they really don't truly believe in themselves at their core essence, they've got so much self-doubt and imposter syndrome that it's hard for them to break through that shell of self-doubt to really let themselves go back and say, this honestly is who I want to be. It's who I really am. But I've I've built so many thick layers over it. I don't even see it anymore. Do you see that? So many times, so many times, you know, I was working with a client who, um, you know, was telling me how, um, you know, uh, and actually this might resonate. Um, He was telling me how, you know, everyone around him wouldn't listen to what he had to say. He had all the answers and they just wouldn't do what he wanted them to do. 
and take his suggestion and move forward. Um, and he was at a higher level, you know, in a, in a consumer products industry. And, and he would get really mad at people, you know, when they wouldn't do, you know, he's like, look, this is the answer. Just move forward. Like they wouldn't, and they wouldn't do it. And they kept, you know, they were just sort of stuck. And so, you know, we're, we're talking about this on one of his um, coaching calls and, you know, I said to him, look, you know, I, I've noticed some patterns here and I, you know, would it be okay if I shared that with you? And he's like, yeah, sure. Bring it on. And so I said, you know, you know, you, you, you yell at the people around you. Um, and actually you've been yelling at me on our coaching calls. And by the way, I don't appreciate that. Um, you know, you get angry with people and you chastise them in front of people in the office and you wonder why you're losing people on your team. What is going on with you? And all of a sudden he, like, I hear, like, I feel the silence, you know, the radio silence. And he's like, he's pushed back from his desk. And here's this guy who's like this, you know, very military, like, you know, person. And, and he's crying. And I said, so tell me what that emotion is about. What's going on? And he said, well, I just realized I'm a blank. And everybody knows it but me. And... I said, is that all? What else? Because he's still crying. And he says, I just realized that the way that I am treating my employees at work and my colleagues at work is the way that I am treating my wife and my children. And I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be that person. And can you help me? And it was from that moment that we were able to then make some progress, you know, in his coaching. And he, to this day, he, you know, he, he, he saved his marriage. He has a different relationship with his children. Um, and, you know, funny enough, he ended up getting promoted at work because he shifted how he showed up and interacted with people at work. And it was all through that first part of like leading himself and having that self-awareness of how, who he is and how that was coming across to people and the behaviors that he was choosing and the beliefs that he held that drove those behaviors. And so until he got to that point where he was actually leading himself first, he couldn't lead other people effectively. It's so true and it's so good. And, and by, the, by the way, I feel like, I don't know if you agree or disagree on this, but he had a breakthrough, obviously, and that's the breakthrough is what led to the willingness to change. And sometimes we all have to reach that point. Um, you know, at the, at, the, at the same time, I think having that desire, it's not a, you don't just fix it in a day. And, and you never arrive, right? The, to me, leadership development, human development is, it's a constant challenge to how do I be better today than I was yesterday? How do I discover one more thing new about myself today that I didn't know yesterday? Um, do you, do you subscribe to that philosophy? Oh, a hundred percent. You know, this, this is a, this is a story that, you know, this took place in 2020 and, you know, I just got feedback from this person a couple months ago you know, that these, these changes, you know, so it's an ongoing process yeah. and it isn't something that will ever end. Um, I think, you know, the beauty of that is once you're open to discovering, you know, who you are and developing that self-awareness and developing that emotional self-management, um, you know, there's, there's a journey that you can go on for a lifetime that just continues to improve the results that you get. Well, I know we've spent some time on this. This is, this is really important. And you covered in the book, and <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this, and I, I really even enjoyed your your take on it. Is when you're starting with that self discovery, you know what are the, what are your what are your true strengths? Um, you know what what do you 
what are you good at and what do you really enjoy doing? And when you overlap those, and then when you look at it through the lens of, okay, you discovered a handful of good strengths and you gave lots of tools in the book to go find those out, then it's like identifying sometimes when the strength can be also become your kryptonite, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and knowing knowing what that looks like. And uh, if you, so you're, if you're speaking to leaders right now that are listening, how, how would you coach them through that? Uh, the, both discovering your strength and operating within it, but also the times we get a lot of this, we get a lot of leaders saying, yeah, but uh, my strength doesn't always fit with my job description. And so I've got to do all these other things over here that I don't enjoy doing or I'm not very good at, but I have to because they're part of my requirements of my role. So can you put those the tension between those two together of discovering your strengths and what you're really good at and enjoy doing versus what has to be done because you've been expected that this has to be done? What would you what advice would you give those leaders? So is the question actually like how do I how do I coexist in those two places even when I don't enjoy some of the things that I have to do for my work? Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, um <laughs> well, in an ideal world, you would design your job so that you have the stuff you love to do and you outsource the rest of it. Um, being an entrepreneur, you can do that. Um, but, you know, if, if I think back to when I was in the workplace, um, you know, there were things that, you know, I was super good at. and But they were things that I hated doing. But yet people kept sending them to me because I was so good at it, you know. And so I had to... I had to figure out how to deal with that because I wanted to spend more of my time doing the things I loved. And so um, I, for me personally, I would seek to find someone that was in my circle who either um, needed a stretch assignment or wanted a stretch assignment or wanted something that would, you know, help them grow and develop their skills. Um, and if I could, I would, you know, turn over that task to them and then oversee them and coach them through that so that they would learn. Um, and then I had the ability to also grow because I was helping someone learn, do something. Um, sometimes I wasn't able to do that. Sometimes I just had to suck it up and do it. And that's not much fun. Um, but I think there is an opportunity when someone comes to you and says, Hey, I have this new task or I have this new project and, you know, this is what it's going to involve. I think asking the questions so you understand what's going to be involved. Is it strengths and things that I enjoy doing? And if it's something that I'm really good at, but I don't enjoy doing, is there an opportunity to say no? Because sometimes I think we're afraid to say no. And. I think that also becomes a question of, you know, what are the values that I'm using to guide this? And is it something that is fear-based? If I say no, well, then maybe they won't think that they need me anymore and they'll let me go. Or trusting that if I say no, and here's why, and here's who I think would be a great solution to handle this, could be an option um, that would be a great workaround, you know, for you and for this other person. Yeah, that's that's great, and I think everybody's role, obviously, everybody's situation is a little bit different. But I I I think of it in terms of this is probably going to be a bad analogy, and you can always you can coach me out of it. I, I really enjoy a great grilled prime rib with mashed potatoes and a big glass of uh, Cabernet. I really enjoy that. I think I'm gifted even at eating and participating <laughs> in the consuming of that meal, uh, but I don't necessarily love. You know, standing in the, you know, prepping the meat, going to the grill, standing over the hot grill for an hour, uh, preparing the meal, and then doing all the dishes and all the things that go along with cleaning up after the meal. 
but they have to be done, right? And so the, to me, I think of it in terms of, well, what do I, can you find those places? Like it, when I'm doing the thing I don't love to do in the role, let's say the dishes. Well, I love to, I love to songwrite. So can I, can I start in my mind while I'm doing the dishes? Can I do something creative? Can it, can I have a great, tell stories to my kids? Can it, can you figure out ways of incorporating some of the things you are good in into the stuff that you're not? And that's a, again, a very narrow focused analogy, but I think that's another way. Sometimes we don't think about creative ways of bringing in the things we're good at into the environment of the things that we think are just, ah, these are menial tasks. And to get practical, I think about when I started this business, I am a creative. I love that side of me. I am a performer. I love the keynote speaking. I love the authorship. I love writing and I love the stage. And so here all of a sudden I had to learn finance. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so for me, it was, okay, well, this isn't a, this isn't a nice to have. This is a must have. So I will throw myself into the world of finance. And it turned out I ended up enjoying it after a while um, because it was helping me put together this vision for this other thing I was trying to do. Uh, it wasn't a gift. It wasn't a strength. It wasn't a skill, but it started to become one because I was willing to put a little bit of effort into it without compromising my other strengths. So I guess that's kind of one of my other questions is, is, is have you seen leaders be able to evolve in some of those areas where maybe you just didn't think that you liked it, but you started to lean into it and found that you were pretty good at it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's always that opportunity, you know, to discover something that you didn't know about yourself before. And I'm not saying that, oh, you should always just like try to outsource everything that you don't like doing. Um, but I do think it becomes a question because we have limited time and we have limited resources. So where is it that you want to focus that time and energy? And do you want to spend disproportionately more of your energy and, you know, um, emotional labor working on something that you may not be very good at at the beginning? You know, we're not all experts when we start out. And so you may discover along the way that, oh, I've got this really great passion for this. And, you know, I love to paint. I'm a terrible painter, but I love to paint. And so I've given myself permission to be horrible at it. And it's sort of liberating in that way. Um, but am I going to be Van Gogh or Matisse? No, absolutely not. But it's something that I enjoy doing. And, you know, it may I may find that a few of the techniques that I learn during learning how to paint might be applicable to something else in another strength, in another area that I can bring that creativity to and think about it in a different way and come up with a different solution. So to me, it's always sort of like a, you know, an interconnection. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Well, I'm again, we're just scratching the surface. What you are an artist in is you're an artist in helping leaders paint a better future vision for their life. And you've done so in this book, Be Human, Lead Human, How to Connect People and Performance. Where else can folks go to learn more? Because, I mean, we didn't even, I just did such a disservice. And there's so much gold in this book. Now, the good news is, is we've teased it enough that I think people didn't think they got the book just in this podcast. They're going to have to go read it now. So that's the good news. Uh, The bad news is I don't know that I even did it justice to what you put in this book, which is amazing. Where can we find out more about you, uh, your speaking, your consulting, your workshops, also your book? Tell us a little bit more where the audience can find you. Sure. So if people would like to learn more, um, they can go to my website, which is drjennifernash.com. It's drjennifernash.com. And all the information about the book is there. All of my consulting and coaching work is there. Um, they can also, which we didn't touch on, um, Jeff, but they can take the Human Leader Index online as well, which is in the book for a paper and pencil version. Um, but they can take the online one at my website as well. 
Can I clarify real quick on that? So I think that's a really important point. The human leader index assessment that's normally these things are hundreds of dollars if you could take any of them. You've got it right now in the book or you can get it online. And at the end of the day, it's, is it going to give me, it's going to index me against your research relative to what, what, where I fall as a leader on the human versus alien scale? Is that, is that what we're doing here? <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's it's complimentary right now. Um, and it's 67 questions that will help them assess where they are on their human leader journey. And if they're not where they'd like to be, it gives them the opportunity to create a coaching plan for themselves with feedback and suggestions on how they can move the needle to get where they want to be. Beautiful. And they get a 25 page report when they take it online. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Uh, well, thank you for that. And I uh, encourage everyone to go get that, go get the book, go get the assessment done, uh, go to Jennifer's website. And you'll learn a ton. If you are either, even as an aspiring leader at this point, we have so many young folks coming out of college and they're trying to get into the workforce today and, and you want to help lead the new revolution of leadership in, in this country, then this Dr. Jennifer Nash is an excellent mentor for you to go and learn from. So thank you so much. And as you continue your journey on the, the rollout of this book and all the vision you have on that, we'd love to have you back for an update uh, on the show in the months to come. Oh, I would love that. It'd be my honor. Thank you. Great. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. Do you love news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. out.